1: Well, thank you very much and welcome to caregiver SOS on air I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host Carol Zernial a nationally known gerontologist she serves as the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation most recently just left after two years as uh, the board chair for the National Council on Aging and remains on the board uh, as a board member, as a past president. Uh, She also is one of 50 top influencers when it comes to aging and discussions about aging, and we are delighted to have her with us. And we're going to be talking with a guy. You've got the book right in front of you, John Leland, who writes for The New York Times a fascinating book called happiness is a choice you make he decided he wanted to do a series which he did hanging out with a bunch of older people
2: well and you know it's lessons from the oldest old so we're talking about people who are 85 plus and if you think that sounds boring or depressing or anything you know you need to listen to john because it's an excellent book and and may, may i think he has some surprises for us
1: changed his life he said and I believe him, and we'll talk with him in just a couple of moments. Uh, I want to kick off first with something, uh, and you're one who plays right into this walk, stretch, or dance. Uh, you do all of the above.
2: Well, walk, stretching, or dancing? Um, actually, yes. Why yeah. is that important? Well, you know, th- this is from, comes from Gretchen Reynolds who writes for um, wellness in the New York Times. And so, you know, they, there's a study, and, and this kind of parallels some other studies. I think we've talked about this when the study originally came out, but it's what's, what's best for you. So, you know, if you have been a sedentary person your whole life and you decided you want to get moving, you know, what's the best thing to do? Is it, is it just plain walking? Is it stretching? You know, dancing is a little bit more fun. And so, of course, the neuroscientists, those fine folks who want to get the real scoop, uh, divided people up. And they did a study where they assigned people to walk and another group three times a week, another group to stretch, and another group had to learn country dancing. And so after six months and looking at the white matter in their brains, because who doesn't want to look at the white matter of people's brains, um, they found that the group that did the best uh, were the group that were dancing.
1: The thing I loved, when I first moved to Texas back in 1990, 1991, uh, going to barn dances, part of the rodeo uh, trail ride. and. All that DJ had to do was drop that little phonograph needle, although, of course, it's not a phonograph needle, but drop it down on Cotton Eye Joe and people from every county in Texas, if they could hear the music, were up dancing.
2: Well, we run community senior centers and we could have a dance at 8 a.m. and the floor would be full. So, you know, if people don't even think about dancing as exercise, but, you know, as we get older, our brain does lose, you know, some of the wiring. The white matter is that hard wiring. Fewer and, little
1: synapses. Yeah.
2: And if dancing, so the combination of dancing, which makes, you know, you've got to learn choreography. So you got to think. You've got to repeat it. You've got to physically execute it. It's fairly complicated. If that's the best way, to A, get exercise, and B, help your brain health, I mean, I don't know, I don't think it gets much better than that, personally, because there's so many different kinds of dancing.
1: Now, until you lost your instructor, you were an avid flamingo dancer.
2: Well, I I didn't lose her like lose her. They changed the class time. There's still a class out there. She's fine. Okay. Everything's fine. Um, but I just, I've got to clear my calendar for another night of the week. Okay. <laughs>
1: so you're still
3: into so still dance.
2: dance. Still dance. And you know, and that's the other great thing is, you know, I started this... Is late in life, I'm, I am not. Um, a, it's not an attractive kind of dancing. Watching me, you wouldn't want to put me in any kind of recital. Um, but it's never too late, and it's so enjoyable. And you don't have to even be good at it. So just have fun. You just have fun, and you're going to do something for your brain health.
1: Well, I'm glad we didn't bury your flamingo dancer yet, but <laughs> you've come up with some pretty good topics. What to read. When you're grieving, and there are a lot of folks who are grieving.
2: Well, the PBSNewsHour.org had an article about 10 things to read when you're grieving, and I looked through the list. Um, and I, you know, I think for different people, there are different things that can help with grieving. Uh, one person wrote about the, the Joan Didion book, A Year of Magical Thinking, which I have also read, um, about the year she lost her husband and her daughter all bet, just back-to-back. Back. And The Magical Thinking talks about all the ways that she tried to deny that they were gone for good. Um, and, you know, for some people, that for it can be a heavy lift. Some of those that really talk about grieving and, and stories of loss, I think somebody else was talking about John Irving. Um, and for... So maybe that helps you. Um, if that's difficult to get through, uh, there was a book H is for Hawk, which was about a person who, when they lost um, their stepfather, they decided to learn to work with hawks. Really? And so, you know, there's a whole series of books that talk about to get you know over grief. It's pick up a book that you know, teaches you something new. Learning something new is the best way to move on which I thought was fascinating. And then there was somebody else who recommended the Harry Potter series, saying pure fantasy, pure escapism you know, it's like being in your childhood again, all that comfort, you know, who doesn't love Harry and all of his friends and, and you know, those are and really good. And the magic, you know, it just, I just got pictures of my grandkids at Universal Studios in, you know, the Harry Potter world. So I cool. can see where that escapism, you know, I just thought that was interesting. You know, but the thing, I think what's important in the takeaway for, for caregivers, you know, we come to a point where we lose people in our lives, maybe we lose the person that we're caring for, um, and what can help us get past that, uh, can be, you know, whatever. It we need to find something that can help us. And books are a great way for us to get over or work through our grief.
1: Actually, the book we're going to be talking about shortly with John Leland deals with that as well. Happiness is a choice, a story of what he learned from and with uh, folks 85 and over that he spent a year talking to and dealing with, and happiness is a choice you make. That's coming up in just a couple of moments with John Leland. Uh, you have a, a new program that's been launched with Caregiver SOS Teleconnection, uh, actually launched with the person who brought the teleconnection uh, to us here in San Antonio, uh, Ask Lucy, which uh, uh, has been going on now. This is the second or third Ask Lucy.
2: Well, we've been doing this since um, the holidays, and Lucy Barilak is a social worker who you can ask any question. Now, let's think about this. Any question and you're on the telephone, on the Caregiver Teleconnection, which is, it's an hour. Yeah, it's free, and you sign up to become a member. You call in when Lucy's on the phone, and other caregivers are there, but you're anonymous. Nobody knows who you are, and she has such wonderful advice. I don't think you could throw anything at her. Uh, She's a a licensed uh, master social worker. I don't think you could throw anything that she couldn't answer. And so, you know, check out Dear Lucy. Send in your questions uh, to radio at Wellmet. I'm sorry, say that again.
1: Radio at WellMed.net.
2: Thank you. Radio at WellMed.net. If you, you can send in your questions there. We'll get them to Lucy. Um, and, you know, the other program on our caregiver teleconnection I'd love for everyone to look out for is we've got the director of programs from the Louis Body Dementia Program. Um, and you may recall that Robin Williams... Um, was had Lewy body. They diagnosed him after he committed suicide uh, and a lot of people will confuse different types of dementia. Lewy body is very common, not as common as Alzheimer's, but it's not the same. The treatment's not the same. The trajectory is not the same. The age is not the same. So if you want to learn more about Lewy body dementia um, March 27th, uh, just go to caregiversos.org check out our caregiver teleconnection schedule. You'll find it posted and you you can find the time for the session
1: next topic and uh, i know this spins out of the olympics the perfect storm for broken bones you're not thinking of figure skaters
2: no you know it's amazing or high flying for high flyers snowboarders oh, all the winter olympics how the do whole they time, do that you see those crashes and you think oh my gosh they Third must head. have broken something right. but you know, there must be something to doing sports and having good bone density yes because so many of them are able to walk away but But not all of us are. And so, again, um, our friend Jane Brody, uh, personal health that she writes for the New York Times, is talking about the perfect storm for broken bones. And what she's talking about is as the population over 50 grows and osteoporosis, you know, where your bones break, they become more brittle, goes up with age. Fewer, you know, for a while we were having fewer um, hip breaks there was a decline in broken bones in aging and it was because a lot of people were on getting treatment for osteoporosis they've got some nice drugs out there that help like the fosamax and the, they work you know, the forteo and things like that and they work but then some research came out that talked about you know bad things that could happen if you take the drugs that are very rare you know we have um, a, a broke a, a strain, your large femur bones will break or you get necrosis your bones die in your jaw and everybody freaks out and so the doctors stop prescribing it or people stop taking it and so now we're seeing more hip fractures wow. um and you know hip fractures are so dangerous uh, a, a large number of people you know it, a, it's expensive you know you're talking about probably fifty thousand dollars you know one in three people fall every year and 20 to 30% of people who fall will die within a year from that fall you know if you're a caregiver out there and you're listening and somebody has told you that your loved one might be at risk of osteoporosis you know they i think when the drugs came out they probably used them too widely for people you know took them too long and they right. weren't really applicable but now we know who needs the medication so a you know, get the bone density scan. It's covered by Medicare. Um, you may need medication if so, it's a good alternative. You may need more vitamin D or calcium, but so you either need medication, you gotta have your vitamins, or you can't fall <laughs> and break something. I and mean that's sometimes- really it.
1: Falls are not preventable. Many are, but not all.
2: That's right. So, that's why they call
1: some accidents.
2: That's right. in, in osteoporosis runs in families. It runs in mind, So wow. that's just something to look out for if you're a caregiver for, or the caregiver and the person you're caring for.
1: John Leland up next on Caregiver SOS on air. Happiness is a choice you make. A New York Times Metro reporter wrote a really neat book that we're going to be talking about in just a moment. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernial. You hear Caregiver SOS on air on 930 a.m., The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed
4: Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life.
1: And it's something that uh, you're newer to, Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio?
4: Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home.
1: Nurse practitioner at Cora Juke, I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 930 a.m. The answer, be there. Well, we're promising we're going to bring you a really interesting story, so why don't we do that? I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zernial. John Leland is a Metro reporter for The New York Times, and he has spent some time uh, putting together a fascinating story in which he went out and hung out with some of the oldest of the old to see what that was like and to get a sense of who they are and what their lives are all about. He spent a lot of years in journalism, some time on the music side of journalism, Uh, In 2015, uh, he is an award-winning journalist, went off to uh, write a book that uh, we got a copy of right here in our Caregiver SOS on Air studios. That is a fascinating story. Happiness is a choice you make. John Leland, thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS on Air.
3: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: How did you come up with the idea to just go hang out with a bunch of older people?
3: Well, I started to put together an idea for a series because we looked at the census and saw that people over 85 were one of the fastest-growing age groups in the country, Uh, and they're they're a whole new population, right? We've never had so many people over 85. So I was wondering what life is like for them, and I started to put together what I thought would be a story list, Uh, and they were the story list was a, a list of maladies. People start to lose their memory, and then life goes downhill. People fall, and then life goes downhill. Uh, people run out of money, and then life goes downhill. And I felt like, well, okay, those seem like valid topics, but I kind of know where all those stories are going. So I switched gears then, and I said, I'm just going to spend time with uh, some people in that age group and let them show me what life is. And it became a really, really different project.
2: Well, I, you know, I I had a chance to look at the book and I have to tell you that when I first opened it, you know, all of a sudden I was again a young gerontology graduate student interviewing an older uh, gentleman for my social, you know, sociology program and he would make me cowboy. It was an 87 year old man and he would make me cowboy coffee every week when I came by on for the semester. And so I just wanted to thank you for taking me (laughs) back. I had almost forgotten that experience of just hanging out and I did that, you know, for my one of my first semesters in school, and it and it it made, brought back good memories. Now we're assuming John knows what cowboy coffee is.
3: I don't, but nobody made it for me. I'm going to have to, like, hold my elders to to ask for that. I'm sorry you
2: missed it. It's where you just pour the grounds in the water and when they serve it up, the grounds are still in the water.
3: (laughs)
1: Okay. Because out on the range, you didn't have a strainer.
2: No strainer. Just drink it straight up with the grounds and everything. So that that takes getting used to. But but you, you know, the title of your book, Happiness is a Choice You Make, that is not a title most people would associate with the oldest old
3: no and it's not one i would have ever associated with them either until i did it and then i found out what you guys who work in this field know which is that there's all these great lessons for uh there's all these this great wisdom there there's this great resilience there there's a a willingness to face your problems head on well and and this just i you know it they weren't They weren't happy because they didn't have problems. They were happy in spite of their problems, and they, they just got on with their lives.
1: Now, were you looking at every socioeconomic level, or were you concentrating in one particular area?
3: The, the person with the lowest income I worked with had an income of $700 a month in SSI payments. And the person at the top, gosh, I have no idea what he made, but it wasn't super high. But he did make enough money to pay you know, $5,000 a month in rent. Now,
1: how do you live on 700 bucks a month in the New York area?
3: She had a subsidized apartment that was capped so that she paid 300, uh, I'm sorry, she paid 30% of her net after medical expenses in rent. Ah. And then she had uh, Meals on Wheels and, and uh, Medicaid and uh, paid for an aid for her, a home attendant to, to work seven hours a day.
2: Well, so you also talked about, you You have a group of people you interviewed, but I believe you also mentioned your mother as an inspiration for these stories.
3: My mother uh, is a big part of this, and she's, you know, of course, the older person that I'm closest to. I have two brothers, but they both live in, uh, in different parts of the country, so I live closest to my mother. So I'm the main caregiver for her, and my mother is uh, an older person who's, depressed about her life in old age she's in a lot of pain she's got uh, chronic back problems and she really wishes that she had died at several junctions in her life
2: well what do what do you say to her when or you know maybe you heard this from some of your other um seniors that you interviewed what do you say when somebody says i've been here long enough i want to die
3: well Here's the thing that I learned over the course of it is that it's not my job to fix mom or talk her out of these things. It's just my job to let her know that I love her and I care about her and that she's loved while she's here and that she'll be missed if she goes. Uh, it took me about a year to to really understand this. And one of the men that I, I interviewed for the story uh, also had lost his partner. He lost his partner about six years uh, before I met him. And he was losing his eyesight and losing his use of his hands. And every time I would see him, he said he wanted to die. And and he was always clear about that. He would say, you know, the only thing I'll regret about it is that, that I won't be around to know that I finally died. But he, he was a guy who liked to talk, and talking always cheered him up, including talking about wanting to die. So I would say, you know, John, do you wish you died yesterday? And he'd say, well, no, because we're having this conversation. And I'd say, well do you want to die later on tonight? And he would say, well, no, because Anne, my niece, is going to come visit tomorrow. Oh, yeah, and then Alex and Marcus and Scott. And And so it, he didn't really want to die. He just didn't want to have 30 years in front of him. And so he was able to kind of live in joy and enjoy the things in his life uh, while he was around even though he didn't want
1: to live long. We're talking with John Leland, uh, New York Times Metro reporter, whose book, Happiness is a Choice You Make, recounts the time he spent hanging out with a bunch of old folks and the stereotypes that he began with quickly disappeared. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernial. You hear us on 930 a.m., The Answer. Uh, John, Happiness is a Choice You Make. Uh, did that title grow out of what you learned as you talked to all these folks?
3: It did, and it didn't come to me until I was done with my year with them. I stayed in touch with them afterwards, and I'm still in touch with the ones that are still living. But I wasn't in, in you know, visiting them every couple of weeks the way I had been uh, when I was writing the book, or when I was doing the newspaper series. And, and it just kinda got to me one day, the words just fell into my head and i wrote them down on a sheet of paper and i hadn't written a word of the book and i didn't even know what the book wanted to be but i just wrote them down and taped them up by the side of the bed they were the first things i saw in the morning and the last things i saw before i went to bed at night and they just kind of stuck with me and i'm like yeah that's what all those people do they're not happy because whatever happiness they have in life isn't because the circumstances have brought them that they didn't get that new raise or or that you know, fancy fur that they always wanted. They're not going to the dance later. They're finding some resources inside themselves that they're choosing to define as their lives.
2: Well, I love that you use the word choice because so many people, I think, in describing older person particularly those 85 plus you know think that they don't have choices when you're old you don't have choices Um, and yet you sound like these people that you talk to have found ways to sort of filter out the things that you know hold them back and that they've choose to in certain ways maybe not always cheerfully making a choice but they but they get able to sort through that and find some positive aspects uh, despite some difficulties
3: I think that's a great point you just made. You know, I went into this series thinking old age is something that happens to people. You know, you live your life, and then it goes on for a while, and then all of a sudden you hit old age, and now you're just old. And I learned from these people, these wise people who had are experts because they've done it, that old age is a stage of life like any other where you're making choices about your life and how you want to live and how you want to see yourself, how you want to see the hardships that we encounter at whatever age we are because we always are you know encountering hardships
1: now how old are you
3: i'm 58
1: and the folks that you were dealing with uh, age and old age of course is a moving number what's old for some is not for others but generally you're talking about folks 85 and over
3: that's right and i and i purposely didn't do my series based on you know, six people who are still running marathons and
2: uh, <laughs> right. you know, jumping
3: out of airplanes.
2: Overachievers. Because
3: I find those people incredibly inspiring, but, but then they don't, whatever we can take from them, we can't apply to our own lives. Uh, I picked ordinary people. How would you find them? All different ways, and it was one of the most fun things I do. You know, as a journalist, casting for characters can be uh, the best part of it. So I'd go to senior centers and nursing homes, and I knew I wanted people at different walks of life. I wanted people to be gay and straight and black and white and Asian. And, you know, I wanted one person who I knew was going to be a good talker. So I picked a semi-famous person who was an avant-garde artist. And... And they just kind of all came together. Some were uh, isolated from their families, and some were deeply involved with their families. Uh, Some, uh, you know, where where there was a new couple who had found love in a nursing home, and there were other people who had never dated after uh, nursing their husbands in their final years. And so it was a big mix.
1: Were there cultural differences in how they handled aging?
3: Yes. Oh, boy. It's just as broad as any other period of life. And some were content in it and some were nostalgic for the person that they used to be. Some worried about that every little thing that went wrong was the beginning of the end. I think that's one of the great myths about aging is that that we're all, that that next step that happens to us, is the beginning of the decline and it's a downward spiral from there and we forget that you know people have they go down and then they go back up and they go down and they go back up just like they do uh, at any age
2: well when you were speaking with any of them didn't did you ever ask them you know if you could go back and be any age did any of them express i wish i was you know thirty forty again
3: uh... the one woman really missed the time when she was around all her sisters and her mother, she, she's, she would often cry when she mentioned her mother. So there was that time when they were so happy. But there was another man, I would say, who, who had a very hard life. He was in, And during the time I knew him, he lost parts of two toes to gangrene. And he lived in a walk-up apartment, so he was navigating those stairs, always in a lot of pain. And I would say, Fred, what's the happiest time of your life? And he would say, right now. Happiness is what's happening right now.
2: Wow. It's very zen. It is very
3: sad. <laughs> Fred was a, you know, his church was the most, one of the most important, well, I would say church and sex were the two most important things in Fred's <laughs> life. Some people are complicated that way. But, uh, you know, he was, he did have that thing that, that jives at Buddhism.
2: Yeah, but that, but that, you know, that that idea of, You know, living in the moment that really transcends, it's not specific to one religion or philosophy, but it, I think you've, you've touched upon, I mean, if we were to go out, You've come at this book, you know, talking about happiness is a choice you make. Um, you know, some lessons for the rest of it, but us. But living in the moment is something that you know, all of us could do. Stay with us. We're going to come right back to you. We're talking
1: about happiness is a choice you make, and a story about how John Leland spent a year hanging out with a bunch of old folks and came up with a book totally different from what he thought it would be going in. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zernial. This is Caregiver SOS on air, right here on nine. 9- 30 a.m. The answer. We are having the best conversation with John Leland a New York Times Metro writer. Happiness is a choice you make. Lessons from a year among the oldest old, a book he wrote after coming up with an idea for a series that turned out to be very different from what he thought it would turn out to be. And I loved, for those of you who have just joined us in the very beginning as we were talking with uh, John Leland, Carol Zurniel, my co-host and I, uh, you said something that was really interesting because what you did, You cataloged all the diseases that you know hit older people, and you figured this would be the story. You know, uh, Seymour's got this, Sadie's got this, so-and-so's got this, and that didn't turn out to be the story, although many of them probably had those medical issues.
3: They did have those issues, but none of them defined their lives by that. And what I realize is that I'm guilty of doing that, and it's once i realized that i and stopped doing it it changed the kinds of conversations i had with people and it especially changed the conversations i had with my mother because i had always thought my role is to help my mother with her problems and i love my mother and i'm happy to do that but it can get tiring at a point and it makes our relationship a one-way relationship and once i realized it wasn't that and it wasn't my job to fix her then we have a much better relationship, and instead of being a project, my mother is a lunch date or a dinner date.
2: So, you know, I'm hearing you talk about a whole person, you know, that we tend to, you know, maybe categorize people, pigeonhole folks, um, particularly the, the elderly and, and the oldest old. Ageism. You know, a little bit of ageism, age, ageism, ageism <laughs> in our society.
3: Oh, boy, that's a big problem. You know, you you have two aunts, and they're 94 years old. One's had a stroke, and she's a little hobbled over, and she can't talk like she's doing. You say, oh, well, she's old. And then the other aunt is, like, sort of vital, and she plays cards every day, and she gardens every day. You say, oh, she's so youthful. No, they're both 94. You know, those are just both iterations of 94, and both of them are probably interested in a lot of stuff beyond whether they are gardening or 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 have uh, that that stroke
2: well you talk about you have an interesting concept um, in the book where you you talk about you know what we can learn from the lives of older people and you talk a little bit about living life backwards or planning backwards can you talk you know this this thought of of what how you help the how they can help the rest of us live better lives now
3: yeah if you could imagine what kind of life you, you want at 80 or 90 just say that uh, you know some things you're not going to want you're going to probably have some health issues so maybe like making love and the pounding surf at Waikiki is, is not the life for you but what is it you, you want is it a lot of money well maybe not is it companionship ok bingo you want companionship you want support from your family You want maybe you want art or literature in your life those are all things we can pursue now, and they'll they not, well, not only will it give us a better life when we get to be eighty or ninety, but they'll give us a more joyful life now.
2: Well, I think that's really important. I know with all of the talk about isolation and loneliness, and and looking at um, some of my own older relatives, uh, you know, developing those support systems now and maintaining those friendships that you have, or re- getting back in touch with people, you know that. It doesn't just happen. It actually does require some action on our parts.
3: It does. And then it also, if you think the future is misery, it's going to uh, uh, bring you down now. If you think the future is going to include some hardships but also great joy and companionship and you're going to spend time with your friends and your family's going to care for you, uh, then it lightens your days now.
1: How has this book changed you and your outlook are you a different John Leland from who you were
3: absolutely you know we always hear these things we always hear that we should live in the moment live each day as if it's your last you know be grateful uh, you know look beyond your difficulties and there's something so naked about people when they get to be 92 93 87 that instead of just hearing the cliches, we're seeing you're able to see those things lived out almost in the raw. And by seeing it I, I now understand what what these cliches that I've heard all my life actually mean i can see what it looks like to live in the moment i can see what it looks like to feel gratitude in a way that is not just being happy that you got a gift but looking at the world as a place that gives you things
1: now did they see their advanced age using the term lightly as a gift
3: no i don't think anybody did i think they would have all uh you know had the energy and the spryness and, the, and the, the loose joints that they used to have, but nobody wanted to go back to work, necessarily, and nobody wanted to, to take the bus in a crowded traffic. So they did see gifts of old age.
1: My mom used to say she died when she was 90, 91. I'd say, how you doing, mom? She'd say, you know, Ronnie, I'm doing okay. Everything hurts, but hey, that's okay
3: woman I mentioned before who had the $700 income, $7 a month income, she said that life was so much easier in old age compared to when she was working a difficult job and commuting by bus, and then when she'd get home at the end of the day, taking care of her family. Wow. That was a full-time job. And now she had all this leisure time. She had people that came to see her, and she played Mahjong every day.
2: Well, I'm thinking, you know, did any of these people, did they, anybody reinvent themselves? Did they become, you know, take on anything new um, late in life? Or, you know, was it really kind of distilling themselves down to the the essence of who they were?
3: I think they were who they were. They were a, a version of themselves at 60 and probably a version of themselves at 20. <laughs>
2: There's, there's a you know there's a theory that as we age we become more like ourselves. So we start out very different, and we go to school and we kind of get acculturated with everybody else, and we become very similar. But we let that go as we get older and really go back to being ourselves.
3: I, I begin the book with a quote from David Bowie that I absolutely love, where he says, "Aging is an extraordinary process whereby you become the person you always should have been."
1: Ooh, I like that.
2: Yeah, I like that you always should have been because yeah. sometimes maybe we we might be happier at a younger age if we were a little more true to ourselves or really didn't care as much. I know, you know, I, I, I laugh. You know, people will say, well, I'm old. I, you know, I don't care what other people think. You really give yourself permission um, to, to be yourself, I think, as you get older.
1: Now, how much did you tell the folks that you were interviewing uh, what you were doing?
3: Uh, I, uh, entirely. We were we were quite upfront with everything. We we talked all the time, and I was publishing articles the whole time, so they saw what I was going through, and, and I would always get their feedback on things.
1: So they became many celebrities in their own world.
3: Oh yeah, Helen Moses, who lived in a nursing home, <laughs> she said, "Like I don't know them, but they all know me."
2: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, um, of the people that you interviewed, you know, share, you know, a, a story that really sticks out in your mind. Um, you know, is something that you really in, enjoyed or was a surprise?
3: Well, I'll tell you a story, and it's a sad story. John Sorensen, the man I mentioned who, every time I saw him, said he wanted to die. Uh, Eventually, he'd really had it, and he'd stopped eating, and he fell, and he probably was on the floor for a day or two before anyone knew it. He gets to a nursing home as, to do a uh, subacute rehab, and he just stops eating because John had had it. And I thought, well, that's the worst kind of death I could imagine. But John loved opera. And he spent that time listening to the operas that he loved, and he was so grateful for anyone who came to see him. And uh, I was with him on one of his last days, and a physical therapist came by and said, I'll be back again tomorrow. And John is in the hospital, but he's really frail, and he just stares at him and says, I look forward to it already. And yeah. I think, how many of us live like that? But we all can. We don't need the gift of being almost dead to do so. and. And it was just completely eye-opening to me. So that when when John died, I miss him, but I wasn't sad and I wasn't broken up when he died. I thought John had finally gotten what he wanted.
2: That's right. He he had made some choices in his own life.
1: Now, did he end up with an obit in the New York Times?
2: Uh, I wrote a piece
3: about him, and the headline of it was, Somewhere John Sorensen is Smiling.
1: (laughs) I like that. Who else sticks in your mind? I mean, you interviewed so many folks, but not everybody's the same, of course.
3: Well, Jonas Meckes was a Holocaust survivor. He wasn't Jewish, but he was put in a Nazi forced labor camps. Huh. And Jonas called himself a happy man. And I said, Jonas, you know, why are you happy? He said, because it's normal. It's not normal not to sing, not to dance, not to cultivate poetry in the saints, not to be interested in matters of spirit. I am a very, very normal case, and I'm happy. Happiness is a normal state. So I love that idea that happiness is a normal state, and everything else is the aberration.
2: Well, do you see this book as as a self help book? What you know, how do we categorize this? Because if it, it, you're you're giving us some really good advice that and and lessons learned from these other folks, is this self help?
3: It's a little bit of that, yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, you know I learn so much from them and i'm so happy to be passing those lessons along they've really helped me improve my life so if they can help somebody else do that
2: i'm thrilled well you know and for me it's 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 that and i i'd I'd love to give the book to just about everybody i know um you know the uh, my whole career you know, 25 plus years in aging and people constantly tell me, isn't your job depressing? Isn't that depressing? You know, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said that, and I would love to say, look, here, John's got this figured out. Read this. Read
1: John's book. Read
2: John's book. You know, he he, he, he knows what I know.
1: Now, do you travel the country a bit and speak before groups?
3: I do. And I absolutely love it because you meet the most interesting people. And And what I found is the happiest people I meet are hospice workers.
2: There you go, hospice workers, and why is that?
3: Uh, because, well, they never lose a patient, and uh, they, <laughs> you they're... need
1: a drum roll, John. <laughs> but
3: I'm um, um, yeah. yeah, thank you. <laughs> but no, they don't have that. You know, they there isn't that. I, I think doctors are frustrated sometimes when a patient dies. Right. Uh, they, they... Uh, that they were, that they thought it was their, their role to to save the person, keep the person alive, and then the person dies. And and hospice people don't have that. But their job is just to make people comfortable at the end of life. And and what a service that is. And people appreciate that. and Families gather around and and appreciate that.
2: Well, I appreciate, you know, you're writing this book. Um, If people want to read Happiness is a Choice You Make, they can just go on Amazon or any place where books are sold.
3: Any place where books are sold. And I should say that even though it does have that self-help element to it, there's also a fair bit of science in it.
2: Well, there's science and there's stories. I can't think of a category it wouldn't fit in. John, uh-huh. we really thank you. And I, I also
1: like that you're keeping in touch with uh, those who are still living, uh, who you interviewed for the book. That's, that's pretty cool. they become part of your life now.
3: Oh, it's completely selfish. I get so much out of talking to them.
1: Thanks so much. We'll talk with you again soon, I hope.
3: I hope so too. I'd love this. Thank you very
1: much. Happiness is a choice you make. John Leland, Metro writer for The New York Times. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zernil on Caregiver SOS On Air. Don't touch that dial. Take 10 next, right here on 930 a.m. The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to Well Med Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio?
4: You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure. But we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life.
1: And it's something that uh, you're newer to WellMed Radio, and I get a kick out of working with you. What is it you like about doing radio?
4: Well, I like to make sure that my patients are educated, that they know how to take care of themselves, because I only get a brief moment in time to take care of them in the office, and I want to partner with them and make sure they have everything they need at home.
1: Nurse practitioner, Cora Juke. I'm Ron Aaron. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. exclusively on 930 a.m. The Answer, Be There. We appreciate you sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS on air. At the end of each of our programs, we jump to Take 10, a very special segment with nationally known psychotherapist, Dr. Jamie Heisman, an expert on caregiving and addictions. Carol Zerniel, our regular co-host, and me, Ron Aaron. And Carol has come up with a great topic like building your own robot.
2: That's right. If you were thinking about a robot and what you would put in it, I was thinking about a caregiver. So, Jamie, pretend like you were going to design a caregiver and build the caregiver from the ground up. What would you put inside the caregiver uh, to make that caregiver the most successful?
5: Now, I don't think we have enough time in this segment to tell you all the things, so I think I could give you four or five. However, we have to begin at the legs, if you will, standing tall, both feet on the ground, and deal with self-care. Number one, having the insight and the awareness to be able to know that by taking care of our own selves and allowing that health and healing of ourselves to flow over to our loved one and everyone around us is the foundation of building a caregiver from the
2: start. So what do we say to, you know, if someone, whoever's picking up this caregiver, um, there are cultural differences, and and whereas some cultures are very much understand self-care, there are other cultures yes. that, you know, are a little bit reticent. They think that's selfish and, and that giving care is the most important thing and self-care is the last on the list. Yes.
5: That's the codependent way. And I would say nationally, this is really a anecdotal statistic, but I would think almost everybody has a dose of, of codependency in our culture because if you're born in a, a messed household where everybody has their spoon in your soup, or if you're born in a household that's detached that has very little hugging and pats on the back, that's the continuum, if you will, of families that create codependency. And most of us lie somewhere on that continuum, whether it's all the way to the left, all the way to the right, or somewhat in the middle. And so understand that that's pretty much where America is, and so we have a lot of healing and understanding to do about taking care of ourselves, because codependency is really the the condition, if you will, of not taking care of ourselves.
1: I like that analogy. Everyone has a Uh, a spoon in your soup. I used to think that's why they made Lazy Susans in Chinese restaurants, so you could spin it and eat everybody else's food.
5: (laughs) Yes, and that's a great segue into what do we need for the caregiver, like a a dose of patience. How's that, Carolyn?
2: Very good, a dose dose of patience. Patience would be great.
5: I mean, that they understand the changes that can happen in their loved one and the changes in plans and they can actually without, you know, a lot of tor- torture and, and tumult, they can actually turn on a, on a dime and understand that they can be here now by uh, having patience.
1: And and sensitivity.
5: Sensitivity is another piece of your Lazy Susan spice list, Ron. And yes. I would put a dash into it immediately. And, and after that, I would grab compassion
2: out that? Compassion. So what does compassion mean?
5: I think compassion is the empathy, Carol, and understanding of what the other person might be going through.
2: So walk a mile in my sense. moccasins.
5: Absolutely, absolutely. We always kind of really aghast at some at what the other person is going through. They're secluded or isolated. They're not taking care of themselves. But understand that if we can, for a moment, where empathy is and what compassion is, and it is exactly what you said—being able to walk in the moccasins So understand that the person has chronic illness, really, you know, is, they may look wonderful, they may look right, but we have to take them at their word. So uh, after the compassion, grab some good communication. How's that for the caregiver? Oh,
2: good communication. So that one is, you know, that's got to be right there in the middle and hardwired into everything um, because, you know, I think as caregivers... We don't want to burden them. We don't want to worry them. We withhold information, or we make decisions on our, you know, without the other person, and and we can miscommunicate so easily.
1: Or the caregiver could use that line, you know, you don't look that sick to me.
5: Exactly, exactly. And I would tell you that everybody is going through something all around us at all times, and so be nice to everybody because whether they look like it or don't look like it. Something is going on. So really being attentive is really what it's about. Um, if you want a good caregiver, which is understanding the needs of the other person and that you may, a, as you take care of yourself, you know, be empathetic to their needs and and, and understand their emotions and physical changes.
1: i got a question for you right after I remind folks who just joined us. They're listening to Take 10 on Caregiver SOS On Air. We come to you every week on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Dr. Jamie Heisman, is with us. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zurniel. Now, the one thing we didn't begin with as we talked about building your own caregiver, we didn't talk about gender, and I wonder if we are just assuming it's a woman.
5: You bet, you bet. And, you know, with divorce being one out of every two marriages, you know that the male caregivers in our country are are just on the rise like no tomorrow. So there is a, a female and male energy that we all possess in ourselves, uh, however you want to look at it. But I think we would be wrong in characterizing ever caregivers as
2: simply women. Yes, and you'll notice that I did not specify gender at the first and you I know you posed the question. You, That was on
5: purpose. Right. And whether you're male or female, obviously, again, we're back to your lazy Susan here. You need a spice of dependability. How's that for a caregiver?
2: Dependability.
5: Yes. Don't be sporadic and make sure that you're tenacious and you're consistent. And as you're consistent, you're fair and available.
2: So to be dependable, that may also mean... Having some way to fill in the gaps. So what you can't do, you find somebody else who may be able to do that. Like what? Well, I'm just thinking. You know, if you administering are, shots, it could be. It could be. You know, doing the bathing dressing piece. Um, it could be if you need to work part time. It could be, you know, on a weekend. You know, one weekend off a month that keep you from going crazy.
1: That's Absolutely. My, my first shower. Show up. Hey, Jamie. After. That's that's I, after I got home, my first shower, I'm all hobbled up. I'm in the shower. And Gina looks at me and says, You're going to wash that yourself.
5: That's <laughs> TMI. Thank
1: hey, you right. for yeah,
2: okay. Moving on, uh, but, Jamie. <laughs>
5: but, but, but exactly that, dependability is like uh, Gina, of course, but so she has to understand that you have to provide the care that the person needs and is counting
1: on. And is I counting on. Yeah. Right.
2: So, but, so you know, we've got a, you know just a couple of minutes left. What else? We're, we're building the perfect caregiver from age. the ground up. What
1: about age? Is there an optimum age?
2: You know,
5: that's a good question, Ron. I, I don't think, I mean, is there an optimum age for driving? How's that? I know 60-year-olds that drive like 90-year-olds, and I actually my father, who's 90-year-old, probably can drive better than I. So it it is a pretty subjective thing around age. We'd, We'd be surprised. Now, when you're taking care of yourself, no matter what age you are, it's critical.
2: All right. So we're not going to specify gender. We're not going to specify age. What ingredients are we missing?
5: I think one thing that we have to be really mindful of is that the caregiver has to be trustworthy
2: very important trustworthy so we're not going right. to steal money abuse anyone but also you know respect um, the wishes of the person that we're caring for
5: absolutely you got to be trustworthy trust again to reach ultimate success together trustworthiness by a carry is is really the the warmth that somebody's not going to take advantage of you and, and that's very, very critical uh, the safety and, and, and to give somebody that sort of boundaries.
1: And bringing a sense of dignity to the relationship.
5: Absolutely. Dignity is extremely important. And what we didn't mention also that hopefully the caregiver has great respect for is privacy, I think, in, in this caregiving
2: experience. That one is, is huge. huge. Yes, yes, yes. Because we, you know, while we're so busy doing four, we sometimes forget that we need to allow space. For that person to be that person,
1: absolutely, Carol. We got about a minute absolutely. left. Are we missing something that's on your list?
2: Yeah, you know, I think you've done a really good job. So I'm going to let Jamie cap it off. This is his caregiver we're building. So we
1: just need a one eight hundred number, and we'll begin selling these. This is perfect.
5: <laughs> I just believe I believe in the bottom of my heart, uh, and this is probably goes back to you, Ron. You said it often in this show that we have to make the decision first to be a caregiver. And if we have the humility enough to, to be a caregiver and obviously the fortitude enough, the most important thing, I think, for a great caregiver is to maintain a support group and go to it consistently throughout the entire process.
1: You get the cap. we got to stop you right there. Thank you. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zernial. I'm Ron Aaron. Talking about add a little water, add a little mix, stir it up. And you get the world's greatest caregiver. That was interesting. Got to share this with a friend if you're listening to this and you know someone who could use this advice. Uh, these podcasts are available widely. Thanks for listening to Caregiver SOS on air and take ten on 9:30 a.m. The answer.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.